Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. With me, Mackenzie Koss, marketer extraordinaire. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Brand Collective podcast. Today, we have Ben Weaver, Vice President of Commerce, Licensing, and Consumer Products at Marketing Brew. Welcome on, Ben. We're so stoked to have you. How's it going? Hey, we're doing well. We're very excited to have you. Good to be here. I'm excited. I was glad that you guys reached out and see what kind of trouble we can get into today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you mind talking a little bit about your journey? It started, I actually, when I was in college, I still had a full-time job and I worked for a a high-end kind of boutique printing and design company. And that was primarily sales and product development focused, but the majority of our clients were ad agencies and marketing firms in the Dallas area and kind of all over the uh, all over the United States. So I had at a very early age in my career, a very kind of eye-opening experience with a lot of these firms. And while I wasn't actually in the mix of that, we could still see kind of the ideology and the way that some of these campaigns and, and projects and stuff had been structured. So that was really interesting to see. And then from there, I moved into the digital media space um, at a company called Chive Media Group. And that was same thing in the e-commerce space, um, but on the uh, consumer product side of the business. And while, again, my main focus was in product itself, the team was smaller. So we were constantly working together to come up with new marketing campaigns, new marketing strategies. So, you know, it's that was kind of one of those places where it's all hands on deck. So regardless of if you're a marketing expert or kind of a, you know, a novice at that, um, everyone's really involved. And I think that was one of the best ways for me to learn about marketing, both on the digital marketing side, the organic marketing side, you know, paid, whatever that was, um, strategy side, um, just to kind of get thrown headfirst in there. And that's really the place where I kind of started to make my bones and kind of get a little bit deeper into the marketing space and, and kind of move on. And then a little while ago, moved over to um, uh, Morning Brew and was able to become their their head of commerce. And while that position is primarily, you know, strategy focused and things like that, there are still a lot of the marketing pieces and nuances that we have to focus on. In particular, making sure that we're getting people that are big advocates of the brand on the on the journalism and the actual content side and figure out kind of a marketing and customer journey to get them to become consumers of our actual store. Do you mind talking a little bit about the chive? The chive was such uh it created such a movement, I feel like in those in those years. Very much so. They they started back in 2008 and it was, you know, a a photo blog website so before TikTok and Instagram and all those other places. It was a really really unique and interesting business and still is to this day. I think one of the things that really set them apart is they they were really good with marketing strategy when it came to paid and all this other kind of stuff. But I think what was really unique about them is they created two different things. One, they created content to commerce. So we would creatively figure out ways to build content and you know create it and do these other kind of pieces with that and then have kind of a really native path to then you know the buyer going to actually purchase the product. And the other piece of it was community. And and, and the entire Chive brand is um, still to this day and will always be is built on the pillar of community. So they always used to say you can take the you know, we we have been able to create an online community, but we also have the, the ability to take the online community offline. So that's, you know, in real life events. That's, you know, meetups and things like that that happen at the office. It really kind of creates the, this rabid and incredibly loyal fan base 
that not only is purchasing your product, but truly engaging with your content and then spreading, you know, for lack of a better word, spreading the good word about your brand to those that aren't familiar with it, you know? So you have a million, you know, person army that is, you know, basically every single person they meet that, that, you know, is a huge fan that, you know, if the person they're talking to doesn't know what the brand is or hadn't heard of the chive, they're going to tell you every single thing about it. Yeah. I remember I was in Los Angeles for most of the 2010s, I would say. And I remember so often hearing about Chive events. One of the stories I remember, I was shooting a music video. Uh, I'm a video producer and that was like part of it. And we sort of rolled up on the Chive right in Venice and they invited us all in. And we were like, you know, just hanging out on that porch overlooking the beach. It was like fantastic. It was such a great memory. And I think, you know, what their leadership team, John and Leo, the, the brothers that, that started it and, and own it to this day, I think they were really... You know, Leo in particular had come from from a very corporate world um, in advertising and stuff in Chicago. Um, so whenever they kind of started this thing up, they were just I think it started kind of as like the anti-corporate place. Like, you know, there, there's no rules. And I don't mean like within the office, but it's like as far as like marketing some of these things, like there are no rules, like we can do whatever we want. You know, all these other places have policies and procedures and a shit ton of red tape. And with these guys, they were just like, let's break all those walls down and just kind of do whatever we want. And I think, and that has and still serves them incredibly well to this day. One of the most interesting pieces about those two guys as well as on the community side and just the marketing side, they're, they realized very, very early on um, by opening those doors and things like, you know, how you mentioned you were able to get into the office in, in Venice. They did that just to kind of have fun out of the goodness of their own hearts because people just started showing up one day and they just wanted to get them to understand what the brand was about, come up, have a beer with us. And they realized very quickly that that was, even though it happened organically, that it was a very, very powerful tool for them. But there was never any additional, they never started to do it because they were like, okay, we can make money from this. They did it because they've always believed that's still the, this is just fun for our community. It's fun for us to do. And a byproduct of that happened to be you know, generating tons of revenue and continuing to to just snowball your fan base. Yeah. Do you see any similarities? It feels like the audience, maybe that Chive audience was a little younger 10 years ago and now might be a core audience for for Morning Brew. Do you you see any similarities in the way that these audiences uh, grow or interact with the brands? Sometimes, you know, the, the Chive audience, when I started, you know, cause I started there in 2013, um, it, it was definitely a younger audience and, and, you know, they've been such a huge fan of the brand, you know, the core audience still continues to kind of get a little bit older with the brand. They still have plenty of new people coming in. Morning Brew has a similar audience age-wise, but I think they're coming to the platforms for two different reasons. They're coming to Morning Brew to be informed and they're going to the Chive to be entertained. Yeah. So while there might be some small little cohorts that maybe overlap, I, I do think that they are relatively, you know, dissimilar. Yeah. Um, can you talk about native marketing or organic marketing and and what that means to you? Yeah, hundred percent. So, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think, you know, my, my favorite kind of marketing techniques and, you know, brands that do it well, everything is truly native. And I think some of it, you know, for me, I always like stuff that's a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit funnier. That's just, you know, the kind of person I am. So I kind of drawn to that. I think consumers are very intelligent. So if you have a brand 
that says, you know, cause, cause native, native marketing or native advertising, like that, that's a buzzword, right? They're like, we need to be dynamic and synergistic and native. It's like, okay, well, what does all that mean? Right. You can sit in a room and say that, but audiences and consumers are so, you know, they're, they're much more informed than they used to be. And there's so many options out there for them that they're very, very aware of if you're trying to make native, you know, content or, or a native campaign, and then it comes off as like, this is really forced. And it's just a whole bunch of people sitting in a room that have no clue what they're doing, trying to make it happen. So I think like when, when I talk about native, I think it really is, you have to have the right people that really do feel like they're making it native, like, like on the, on the corporate side and kind of pushing it down. Um, like for example, um, there, there's, and, and there, there's a lot of companies, you know, and I don't have any affiliation with these companies. I'll just kind of mention some that I like, but dude wipes is one. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the stuff that they've done, you know, it's kind of silly and it's kind of funny and it's, you know, obviously, you know, to, you know, care for your body and stuff, but just the way that they've kind of put some campaigns together and the way they interact with people on their social and even like the, the leadership team on LinkedIn with other people, it's just, it's funny. And it's, it's, I mean, they're kind and it's just, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I use their products all the time now, you know, and th that was part of it. I didn't feel like I was being sold to and just kind of natively like and organically drew me in. And then their products are tier one, right? right. So like the marketing people, one of them, the product also has to be equally a solid. Right. So, they have to go hand in hand yeah. in order for it to build yeah. such an audience. Um, yeah. What, are there any other brands that you feel like are doing, doing it right? Or any brands that are maybe yeah. doing it wrong? <laughs> Yeah, there's, um, you know, this sounds weird because I'm going to bring up Squatty Potty again. Well, because it was Dude Wipes now at Squatty Potty. I promise. Yes. I, I like other brands. <laughs> not like bathroom related products. We know what ads you're uh, being served. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I, I just, they're ones that were like incredibly unique because Squatty Potty, like, you know, it's the little stool that uses to help yep. movements come out a little bit smoother. And what's interesting is that, you know, how do you market that? to people without it seeming gross or off-putting. And then also how do you create content that is actually going to be accepted by some of these marketing channels? So, you know, they got a little stuffed animal and like a little soft serve machine. Like they made it really cute and kind of funny and everything like that, but it explained what their product does exactly. And it was just absolutely hilarious. Um, and I'll just always remember that that will always stick in my head is, is one of the most funny and kind of interesting things. And, you know, I think being in, in the commerce and marketing world myself, you know, I kind of look at it from the consumer standpoint, but I also look at it from like the brand standpoint and like, what do you think it was like in that room when some of these executives and teams were creating these, these campaigns and using those two as an example, I think that that team was probably whiteboarding in there like crazy, but they were really enjoying it and having a fun and good time. And that yeah. absolutely comes through on the consumer side um, when the campaign is actually released. And, and, and that's what I mean when consumers are a little bit more intelligent. I think about it a little bit different than a consumer, but the consumer still sees how kind of like funny and interesting and just like kind of cute, you know, some of those campaigns were. The energy behind it kind of carries through in each phase. It feels like, exactly. just going back to what you said about um, kind of the room where it happens, it almost feels like there's that organic marketing that happens in just some magical way. Like there's some magic to some ad or some video that makes it go viral. And then inevitably there's going to be a lot of rooms that are like, how can we capture that lightning that that brand did? <laughs> and I almost feel like an audience is aware of that. Like when you see something, you can be like, oh, that's derivative of this other kind of wonderfully beautiful mm -hmm. campaign. Um, it always reminds me of the, um, 
Dollar Shave Club, that original video that they put out. Yes. And then it feels like it created a whole genre of kind of character-driven, direct-to-camera, many things happening right in a row. Like it almost felt like in the the years after it, you just saw that ad recreated by everyone who was like, we want an ad like that Dollar Shave Club ad. Yeah, well, and I think that's a testament to some of those teams, right? Because, and then obviously when something comes out, you know, you can tell that, okay, this is going to be a commercial that we'll remember for a very long time. And, you know, obviously, you know, kind of, you know, copying it or, or, you know, impersonating that ad or whatever is like the greatest form of flattery to a certain extent. You know, I think that there's a time and a place for that in particular. I think that, that if you're pulling like general, you know, general ideas and maybe some concepts and stuff from some of those and kind of making it your own, that still works. But one of the things why I think why those campaigns are so successful is because the ones that are the most successful are the ones that were the kind of thought leader and that they were the original creator. And I think it's probably because they were able to break down those walls and didn't have all of these, like, we got to check every single box here, you know, from like the marketing guide 101 to be able to execute these. They really kind of just had fun with it and really thought outside of the box and took their time. And then a lot of other brands, they see and they're like, oh, this really worked. Some brands it may work for, some brands it won't. But I've always been an advocate. Even if you see something that you really like, you know, try to like harness some of that creativity and some of that, you know, I use that as like a a stepping stool to say, okay, this is what they did. They're obviously fantastic. Can we beat that? Can we try to go more? Not necessarily kind of copy what it is that they've done. Like let it unlock some more creative freedom rather than build more rigid walls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, exactly. Like I said, if there's certain pieces from it that you can pull, that's fantastic. But I would never want to, you know, replicate a campaign because then you just kind of look like an asshole, you know, and then the consumer, <laughs> like, this is the same thing that so-and-so did. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, can we shift gears and talk a little bit about newsletters? Cause it does feel like, uh, maybe they're having a new moment in the sun. Like newsletters are, are sort of reemerging as this wonderful way to communicate with an audience. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that they are. And, you know, I think, you know, when we really, originally started talking about digital marketing, you know, email was kind of the, one of the first, you know, big, you know, kind of movements that that was there. And I think that a lot of companies did it well, but then it just became, you know, before SMS was a thing before, like, you know, paid social and other things like before there were other like real strong digital ways to kind of target people. Email was one of the biggest ones. And I think that it got to a point where people were getting so overloaded with emails and, you know, the unsubscribe, you know, system and stuff weren't really in place. There weren't a lot of rules. So it was kind of the wild west. I think that a lot of people became hesitant to give out real emails and stuff. So they would give you a fake one or didn't want to give it to you because, you know, that was kind of like, that was the kind of initial invasion of privacy. Now I feel like that there's so many other ways that you're hit it's not that you're ad blind, but you're much more willing to give your email because you can regulate that. You can pick and choose when you want to log in to see it. When you're on Facebook, when you're on Instagram, you know, when you're on your SMS, they're going to hit you whenever they feel like it. So maybe it feels a little bit more private. Um, and also I think just the tactics and the, the flows and things that people have done have just gotten a lot smarter and a lot better. Um, and I think some of it comes with age too, right? Like I, I prefer email marketing. Um, you know, with the chive, it was always the biggest organic tool that we had, obviously at morning room. Now it is the, the, the largest tool that they have. Um, I still, you know, I'll still buy stuff from Instagram and Facebook every once in a while, but email is definitely, I, I feel like for me, it's the most validated 
kind of form of marketing that I'm going to purchase. It feels a little bit safer, if that makes sense. Um, Cause I bought a lot of stuff on Instagram. Don't get me wrong. And <laughs> a lot of the stuff I got was like, okay, this is not what was advertised. It, it feels almost yeah. more active rather than passive. Like if you're clicking through to an email, you're generally yes. interested. Like my morning routine okay. is usually just clicking all the emails I want to delete immediately and then 100%. saving that, you know, eight to 10 emails. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to peruse these emails. Absolutely. Um, Next thing. Yeah. You, you're much more engaged and you're much more willing to like read and kind of consume what's in those, you know, when you're scrolling and I think some, you know, people scroll so much on their phone through email, through social, through whatever it is, you see something come up. I'm just going to keep going unless it really catches my eye. I'm going to keep going. Um, but I also, I, I think it also kind of matters with age because like, I know at this point kind of what I like. So there's certain emails for brands that I'll open every single time, you know, like I'll open any West Elm, any Crate and Barrel. That sounds, I'm just so old and domesticated. But it's great. And then, you know, just as a marketer, you know, and, and commerce person in general, like I always like to sign up for random emails um, and other brands that I feel like are kind of fun and interesting. Um, just to kind of see how they do it, see if if there's anyone kind of changing the game or other things. Some of the things I really like about email marketing too is, is that, you know, oftentimes when you're getting an email or you're getting an ad, right? It's like, I'm going to show you the product. I'm going to tell you kind of what it is. And I want you to buy it. Like, it, it's pretty simple. Like that's the, that's the overall concept. I like companies that send emails that obviously there's any way that you can convert. Sometimes there's products, sometimes there's CTAs, but I like emails too that just come out that are purely, that are kind of content driven, that are just funny and like, hey, we're not gonna sell you anything today. You know where we are, we know you can come buy it whenever you want, but here's something funny. Here's a funny video or a funny GIF or a funny story or something like that. I, I, I like that as well, where they're kind of keeping me laughing and, and happy and entertained and not just like, you know, here, here's more, you know, $4,000 couches, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. I love that. Where does, as someone who's sort of on the inside of email marketing, where does it go? How does it progress as, you know, a revenue stream, uh, as a community generator? Where does it go from from here? It's a good question. Um, I mean, revenue generation is is not you know if it was easy, everybody would do it. I think it's just a matter of continuing to evolve and optimize, right? That's making sure that you have the best staff on hand. That's making sure you're putting the best content out and the product, right? Because while marketing is highly important, your product has to be good enough because you could have the best marketers and the best distribution lists and the biggest list and all these other kind of things. But if your product is mediocre at best or your customer experience is crappy, no one's ever going to buy it. So I think, you know, product is first. And I think continuing to, to optimize and continuing to try new things, you know, if things work, you know, it's like that old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Sure. But you can still poke and prod and test with data and things to see what works and what doesn't and maybe try new things, try hitting smaller segments and doing something a little bit more off the wall. Um, you know, on, on the revenue side, I think that again, is a byproduct of you doing all of those things well, right? So really looking at the data and understanding what your customer is doing and how that's happening. And then, you know, the money kind of flows with that as long as the, you know, the points and everything are hidden based on your data. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Can you talk about, uh, these terms like, you know, KPIs in, in email marketing and how they might be limiting versus I like what you said about, you know, trying new things and just hitting a different segment, hitting a different audience and seeing if that bears fruit. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I think 
I didn't say it to you as I've said it before, but KPIs are interesting, right? I feel like every single year, two years or whatever, the KPIs, the OKRs, rocks, whatever you want to call them, they always change, right? It's whatever the industry is doing. Okay. You know, we were, we were open, you know, we were like click through rate and all this other stuff. Now it's completely flipped and it's something totally different. Right. So I think some of those KPIs are going to fluctuate with, with the brand that you're in um, or the brand that you're with. And then also the, the, the actual just kind of general marketing marketplace itself. Um, I think for me, I always like to just keep it as simple as possible. You know, obviously my number one goal through email marketing is to drive revenue. It, it, it's everybody's goal, right? So, so as long as those numbers match, that's fantastic. You know, click-through rates, other stuff is important. Um, but I think every brand is different. You know, every brand is going to have their own set of guidelines and what they want. I don't try to overthink things. The whole reason we're in business and the whole reason we market is because we want you to buy our stuff and we all want to make more money. So, you know, it's, that's, I just yeah. try to keep it as simple as possible. And then, you know, hopefully you don't get too overloaded with that, um, with some of the smaller details. But I do think that not necessarily brands, but I feel like a lot of consumers and other people that really aren't in the marketing world think that email marketing is easy. You just type it up and you send it. It is not. It is highly complex and highly difficult. And I think, you know, as a marketer, continuing to educate yourself and looking at other brands that do things well, but also just figuring out what's new, like even the functionality of the platforms that you're on are really important. You know, um, a lot of ESPs have new systems or I'm sorry, new, new features and stuff that they roll out all the time. So being in the know with those is really important, whether that's, you know, working with an agency to kind of help you whose job it is to kind of stay in tune with that, or whether that's imploring your team that, that you staff to say, okay, you know, we use sale through is our ESP. What are the new things they've rolled out and how can that, how can we leverage those to make our brand better and drive more revenue? So yeah. it's really just kind of not necessarily staying ahead of the game, but, but staying involved and keeping your head above water and really understanding, you know, the functionality of your platform. And then, you know, of course the, the data, you know, and the analytics behind your customer base. Yeah. yeah. As someone who works at a digital asset management company, I value <laughs> a, a good acronym. ESP is a great one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I've been waiting to say that for a while now, so. <laughs> <laughs> in your opinion, what does it mean in terms of the next generation and how they're going to consume newsletters? And I'm definitely uh, referring to Gen Zers. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting one. Um, you know, I think right now, I feel like it's it's going to be a little bit of a tougher lift, I think, because until they, right now with their current rate, I think they're going to have to age up just a little bit, you know, yeah. where they really are using their email more, you know, I know that they have them for school and I know that they have them for, you know, logins to Netflix and Xbox and some of this other stuff, you know, and, and their jobs and, and whatnot. I think that just the way that they consume content in general and the way they're just so much more exposed and kind of intertwined with the digital world as a whole and being online constantly. Yeah. That I think that email marketing is probably going to take a little bit of a backseat to them, but as they grow a little bit in age, I think it'll kind of organically kind of start to fit with, with their kind of day-to-day -day life and, and how they do things. Not saying that it's not a good option. Um, but I think in particular with that, if I was ever targeting Gen Zers in particular, I think you would definitely have to make the emails a little bit funnier a little bit more content focused, maybe a funny gift, really something that's kind of eye, eye catching and like something that they're probably used to seeing on one of those social platforms is kind of the lead right. and then kind of funneling into something else. So changing your, your actual strategy approach a little bit, 
you know, your distribution stuff can, you know, to the people can still be the same, but definitely the content piece, I, I would, I would change up and make it a little bit funnier and a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah. I love that. What is some advice for those who are trying to start a newsletter for their company or on a very particular topic? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, well, I've actually never even thought about this before myself. I would say that, you know, first things first, it's not necessarily like doing the newsletter itself. It's like, if you really believe in it and you really want to do it, you need to make sure that before you want to start a newsletter, that you make sure that you have enough knowledge and enough content that you can create constantly to can, to, to get the cadence of sends out, right? If, if you're going to do it, you know, once a week or once a month, it's not going to be enough to really kind of envelop someone in, in what it is that you're doing. Not saying it has right. to be really, but you do have to make sure that you have enough of a stockpile of content and interesting things to talk about to really, you know, get that sent out multiple times, if not daily. So I think that's the first part. And the second part is just determining, like, is that something that you really want to do? You know, I think that if you want to, if you're starting a newsletter, you know, for yourself, you know, from that's maybe a little bit more content focused or something, I think that, you know, monetization is probably the end goal, you know, through ad revenue and stuff. But don't think about that in the beginning. Make sure the content is, is up to par in tier one, content first, then monetization. We know that obviously the two kind of go hand in hand and you do need to be thinking about that in the beginning. But if your focus is to monetize then content, it's going to it's not going to go well. Content's king. And then you go into the monetization piece. If you're starting one for an actual business, I think it depends on what the product is, right? You need to, the first thing is you got to make sure that again, you kind of set your cadence and understand what it is that we want to market and, you know, and the content and, and the product rather that you're going to put in there. And then from there, then you really need to start growing your list because, you know, you need to get a, at least a good baseline of people you can start to work with um, and, and engage with. And then from there, you can start kind of segmenting it and splitting up, you know, list growth is really, really important, but yeah. you know, if you have a list of, you know, 10,000 people, but you know, you have a 90% engagement rate, I'll take that all day long instead of having a million people, half of which are probably just completely unengaged. Yeah, those I are wise that. words. I, I pictured like some uh, confident young marketer who's like, I, I know this. And I, you know, like, do you have an audience? Do you yeah. have a point? Do you have content? Do you have... Yeah. Those are like yeah. uh, wise, but also it, I, I pictured this scene of like this humbling moment for these young, young minds going like, oh yeah, I really got to yeah, do the work actually, first. Yeah. Young, old, whomever. I mean, yeah. you know, content creators yourselves, you you both know how difficult it is. You know, people see they're like, when they're talking about social media or like an influencer or something like, well, go make content. That's like telling a designer, like, go be creative. That just, it doesn't just, you know, it like, there's a lot of thought and a lot of time and a lot of energy that goes into it. And a lot of good ideas, and a lot of ones that are like, hey, let's strike this or let's move this around. So it's the same thing when it comes to marketing. There are a lot of things that you have to consider besides just pushing the product. You know, it has to be, it has to make sense. There has to be, you know, kind of an interesting hook to all these things. Um, and especially when it's a content-based newsletter, you know, based on what your content is, if it's individual content, that's tougher. It does make me feel of how intimidating it can be, how intimidating frequency can be in these kinds of yeah. endeavors. Because it does feel like there's so much motivation to be like, we got to get this information out. We're going to do a great one. Uh, mm -hmm. How... How important is frequency from your perspective? It, it, it's that fine line between like, okay, you're sending me way too much versus, okay, you send it. And I'm like, oh, that's right. I signed up for that. 
You know, I, I think frequency is incredibly important. I, in my opinion, I would rather send more emails than fewer. Yeah. Uh, just using that in, in particular. Um, you know, most of the stuff that we're doing on social and stuff, it's kind of retargeting and things. So you're going to get hit after you've already looked at something. Um, but, but when it comes to email in particular, I just like a higher, you know, cadence rate. And I'm not saying, you know, hit the entire list every single time. I think you need to get really intelligent and smart with segmentation. I think you really need to be doing a lot of AB testing, um, and really kind of break down like with different audiences and different segments and different kind of ways to try, you know, content versus something that's being, you know, going to be sales focused. And, you know, you, you kind of got to spend a little bit of time to find that perfect mix. But, but once you do, I think it's really, really valuable. It's hard to say, you know, what that perfect number is. I would say, you know, as a marketer, I would want to, you know, if, if I'm a brand, I would want to see at least three emails going out a week. And that's probably yeah. to the entire list. That's not including additional flows or additional segments that, that, that we're going to hit after that. I mean, even breaking up campaigns as far as like people that have a higher LTV or, you know, new customers or whatever. I mean, th there's a lot of really different ways to kind of slice and dice that. Um, but, but at least if you're hitting your entire list, a minimum of three. I like that advice. <laughs> it's like, I need to go. Yeah, she's like, I got to go to write work. some emails. I, I'll be right back. I know. I'm like, I'm, I got to get out. <laughs> already, yeah, it's already Thursday. You, you have, you have I know. Uh, you haven't sent me. I know you named a few brands already, but what are some brands that you personally look to for inspiration and some that off of the list you already gave, but uh, that you think are fun, relatable, and really doing it well in our current market? Um, one of the ones, and not just because it's a, a Texas brand, I really like the way that Yeti markets because I think yeah. they are not only selling products that are like, like who would ever think that they would be good enough at marketing their product that now you are collecting coolers. Their coolers are literally right. made, you need one because they're so durable, but they do such a good job at not only marketing the product, but they are truly storytellers. Yeah. So, so they're not telling the story of their product necessarily. And, and they do a great job of telling how the two brothers, the Cedars brothers, like started that yeah. brand. It's really, really interesting. But it also tells the story of a lot of their brand partners. You know, so whether you're a hunter or a fly fly fisherman or you're a, you know, a surfer or or whatever, right? They they tell those stories of those individuals. And then the product isn't, it's merchandised sometimes in the videos, but it's really completely native. So you're just yeah. enthralled and hooked with those people's stories. And you just, every time you think of Yeti, you don't just think of like a cooler. Now you think of this, this entire outdoor lifestyle and kind of brand that they've created. I think they're absolutely one of, one of the top brands that, that, that does it right. Yeah. That's so interesting that you say that. Cause yeah. I was just at a uh, sort of a mountain film festival. It was a film festival of stories that, you know, really revolved around nature and, you know, uh, that lifestyle. And I think five out of six of the films were sponsored or underwritten by Yeti. Like the characters yeah. are all wearing their Yeti hats. No one yep. mentions Yeti at all. But my takeaway yeah. from that film festival was like, wow, these are some poignant, moving, beautiful stories. And Yeti is really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's doing their thing. <laughs> Yeah, they, they've done some great stuff. Um, I yeah. do like that, 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 and I mentioned this before, I think, but I do really like the way that Target does their stuff. But I like it because they are really going above and beyond on the kind of like the, the inclusion and diversity side, which I think is really important. Their, their marketing isn't necessarily that eye-catching. You know, it, it's it's cool, but it's not, you know, it's kind of status quo for a company of that size. But I do like right. how they kind of touched on like the, the actual inclusion and diversity piece. I think that's really important. Yeah. 
So this is Stand of the Brand, and we're going to be talking about BrewDog. So in 2020, the brand BrewDog took a more unwavering stand against environmental issues, kind of shifted from a little uh, hiccup they had in 2018, and they announced that they're going to be the first carbon-negative global beer business. And as part of their efforts, they purchased 2,050 acres of land in the Scottish Highlands, known as BrewDog Forest, and they plan to plant 1 million trees and restore 650 acres of peatland. BrewDog also alluded to suggestions that it is greenwashing, which is a term that describes companies using marketing tactics to deceive customers into thinking that it's environmentally friendly. BrewDog categorically stated that the initiative was not a trend and that brands are being forced to drive change due to the government not doing enough for this issue. Do you stand with the brand or do you take a seat? That's a good one. Um, I say as a consumer, you know, if a brand does that, you know, like I understand the greenwashing and stuff. It's kind of the same thing with cause-related marketing, right? If, right. You, if you're saying, hey, X amount of proceeds is going to go to this brand, great. But are you doing that because you know that that's going to drive more revenue and then you're just going to give a small piece or are you doing it because, you know, the brand really thinks it's the right thing to do? It's hard to tell, right? If you're a consumer. The yeah. brands usually mean that sometimes they're using it as a tactic, whatever. I think in this particular case, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think it's good that they're doing it, but as a consumer and also as a marketer within that brand, I would want to say, okay, it's one thing if we say this, but we need to have a tactical plan and we need to make updates constantly about where we stand with this initiative. You know, step one, okay, we purchased the land. Step two, we are going to start planting X amount of trees starting this date and do like video and photo and actual like maybe build like a timeline. So not only people follow it, but it shows that you're making good on your promise. And I think, again, once people see that, they trust you more as a brand and they kind of know that you're not just kind of pulling their leg and, you know, saying we're just going to do this and, you know, well, but it's going to be a 40 year project, you know, like you you, kind of want action now. And I know that a project of that size takes a little bit longer. So I, I think it's good that they're doing that. I do think that brands need to be a little bit careful, though, because politics, I think in brands are just, I've always been completely adverse to them. I'm here to buy your product. I don't want to talk about other things. Now, some brands, you know, Patagonia, North Face, you know, outdoor brands, right? Like obviously you you live your life outdoors. There's a lot of pieces where that makes sense for, for a beer company. Sure. Um, I think it's cool that they did it. Um, but I think overall, you know, as, as someone who would, you know, you know, work for brands, I would kind of want to keep my nose out of those things as much as possible. Yeah. I agree, especially on um, the greenwashing piece, because I feel like as consumers, you can just go into any like grocery store, for example, and like the cleaning aisle is notorious for like all these companies. Um, I'm going to name off Don because that came to my head, but it's like they're washing like ducks and everything. And they're trying to like, it's interesting because it's a great marketing tactic, but it also makes me wonder like, what else are you doing behind the scenes and like how many of these, you know, quote unquote animals and like oil spills are actually helping on. Um, I agree that I think it'd be cool for them to do an update. And even if it's like, hey, in the next six months, we're doing this project and like things on social, because I think as a consumer, then it makes it would make me proud to like have the beer in stock at my house and say, oh, they're doing this cool project. They're giving back They're you know, bought land in the Scottish Highlands, which is probably gorgeous. But 
Yeah. Um, I agree because it it's easier. Sometimes it's easier said than done. And it can just be like slapping a bandaid on something instead of actually doing the work. I agree. And there needs to be a level of accountability. I mean, think about yeah. it, right? There's certain goals and, and tasks that you have to do. And if you don't hit them, you don't work there anymore. It's as simple as that. So same yep. thing. I'm, I'm giving you money because I'm enjoying your product. If you say you're going to go do these things, you got to do it, but I'm not just going to take your word for it. Right. So exactly. I think the marketing piece, you know, showing everyone what you're doing is really to show that you're being held accountable and you're actually executing on what you said you would. Yeah. But I think you really make some cool and and fun content out of that as well. If you're if you're doing what you said. Right. Not, you know, <laughs> that, that can be tough. God, people are gonna eat me alive. I'd be like, oh, this guy hates the impairment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you made some good points. No. Accountability is yeah. key in these in these situations. Yeah. Um, it it always makes me think of uh, brands like Tom's, where the whole yeah. initiative of that company was started in an altruistic way. That was sort of every yeah. pair of shoes that you buy, another pair of shoes is going to a person in need. Um, right. And I do think that it it launched that company into the forefront. And there were brick and mortar stores and there everyone, you know, appreciated them, um, for what they were doing for the world. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah. I think a beer company, the thing that's challenging about it to me is that it, it's like, how big is Brewdog? I don't know if they're like a, a massive, it, it sounds like a microbrewery to me, or I don't know if it's in like most places. Maybe it is. I'm just maybe not the biggest beer guy. Uh, I would say the forest name is kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Brewdog Forest. Started by Brewdog Brewery. You know, like it doesn't feel like uh, a serious name, but maybe that's just my judgment. And names grow into the thing that they are. It's not like yeah. they're the hardest thing to do is name anything. I, my wife is pregnant right now and trying to come up with a name is maybe the hardest thing on earth. Uh <laughs> But I appreciate it. I don't know. It's so cool. It's it's cool to think of. I don't know that it drives my interest in them as a beer company more than, you know, the fat tire company sponsoring a bike race. You know, like it's like, yeah, it's cool initiative. It's great. I, I like that it's forward thinking and it's uh, attacking a problem that probably needs to be solved, which is probably the depletion of the peat and the forest yeah. in Scotland. Um, so it's great. I, I like it. Yeah. And I'll say this, if, if it's near and dear to their heart and, and they really will do what they say they will, um, I think that's awesome that they're doing it. You know, yeah. they're doing far more than I've done. Um, I just come from a standpoint of like, you know, there has to be some sort of accountability. And if you do that, good on yeah. you, whatever that is, whether that's environmental improvement, whether that's educational improvement, you know, whatever you're into, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Every episode, we ask the same three questions to our guest, and uh, these are more just to get to know you. So the first one is, uh, what have you done recently for the very first time? What have I done recently for the very first time? Oh, I bought glasses. I failed my driving test. Well, I didn't fail the driving test. I failed the, the vision test. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm in my technically late 30s now, so I had to get glasses for the first time. So wow. made it 36 without them. So here we are. Congrats. Yeah, that's a big sort of, you know, mature, mature leap. Now you can be taken seriously as an intellect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gardening on the weekends, watching, you know, the 1970s detective show Columbo. It's just a <laughs> yes! 
just a really smooth transition <laughs> into uh, senior citizenship for me here. Yeah, hashtag adulting. <laughs> oh man, my, my transition into senility is going to be quite smooth. I can tell you that. <laughs> you got a long way to go before that. Yeah, yeah I was like, no, no. <laughs> um, if you had to, if you were invited to a show and tell right now, uh, is there anything that you would bring and why? What kind of show and tell? I mean, if 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 I'm entertaining adults, than if I'm entertaining kids. Yeah, maybe a little <laughs> oh, column yeah. A, little column B. There we um, go. Just an item that it has, holds particular significance and why. I'll say this, and, and hear me out. I would bring my dog, Ophelia, A, because I love her, and B, I think, and this, this will get a little bit deep, but I think that, you know, before, before we had the pandemic and before COVID was a thing, I, in particular, was a workaholic. I, I was coming in. I would, you know not spending a lot of time at home. I was just head down doing as much as I could to work. And a lot of it was just like having fun with my coworkers and stuff, but a lot of it was just trying to grow the business. And I think that it was all about work. And, and I think even before that, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s, like it was work, work, work. It didn't matter if you liked your job or not. You're, you're here to do a job. You're here to get yeah. paid and put a roof over your head and kind of move on. And after the pandemic, I think that it gave people a lot of time to kind of step back and realize what was important to them. You know, then there was the mass resignation. And now there's the, you know, everyone's, a lot of people are able to work remote. Obviously we three are, which is fantastic. Yeah. And I think people really started to focus on themselves again and really started to be pick and choose the brands and the companies that they wanted to work for, because you spend so much of your life at work and working that you yeah. want to make sure you're respected. You want to make sure that you're treated well, but you also want to make sure that you do something that you enjoy. Um, and I think that one of the things that I missed most was being able to spend time with my wife too, because she'll probably listen to this, but especially my dog. Um, so, so I would always want to bring her because every chance that I have to, cause you know, her life on this planet is going to be a lot shorter than my wife's. So I always like to be able to spend as much time as I possibly can with her, because when I look at her, it kind of reminds me of like, okay, this is what you're doing all these things for. This is why you're working hard. This is why you're wanting to grow and to make more money and to, to do all these things and kind of, you know, expand your, you know, plethora of knowledge so you can, you know, not only care for this, but, you know, so you can enjoy the moments when you don't have to do those things with her. So that's why I would take Ophelia. I love that. That's beautiful. And finally, uh, if you were to uh, meet a younger version of yourself, what piece of advice do you think you would give? Oh, God. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say... I would say never doubt yourself because I think when I was younger, I, I had, it's weird. It kind of flipped when I was younger. I had a little bit more of a kind of steadfast approach. Like I was very confident, understood myself. And I think the older I got and especially started to get into higher level positions, um, you know, it's, it's like playing on a really good team. You just realize that there are a lot of like at morning brew in particular, there are highly intelligent people there. Like people that I'm like, I, I can't believe that I'm even sitting in a room with people that are this smart. Um, so I think, and, and sometimes I've, they call it, you know, imposter syndrome where you're just kind of like, am I good enough for this? You're kind of second guessing yourself. And I think through a lot of it, I've always at the end of the day, kind of trusted my, my gut instinct for, for things. Um, and it's, it's obviously served me well. So I think, you know, going back, you know, for, for the times when I was definitely younger and I was kind of like waffling on, can I do this? Can I not just say, always believe in yourself. And, you know, give it a shot. Sometimes it's going to work. Sometimes it's going to not, you know, sometimes you're going to get hired. Sometimes you're going to get fired. Um, you know, you just always have to have to believe in yourself 
um, you know, to kind of keep chugging. Yeah, that was extraordinary. I think that's uh, yeah. such a universal gift of a piece of advice. Yeah. And I, and I think too, like kind of another piece of that would be like, make time for yourself. Make yeah. sure, that, you know, and like, you know, there's the routines and all that kind of stuff. I get all that, but make sure that when you're going to take time off, like for vacation, you really take time off. Make sure that you're setting boundaries with yourself, you know, with friends, with family, with work, whatever that might be. Yeah. You always have to make sure that you have time for you. Cause I found myself in my younger years, making more time for my friends than I did for my family, making more time for my family than I did for work, making more time, you know, and, and so it goes yeah. And at the end of the day, you're making time for everyone else but yourself. And you never want to get to a point where it's it's not necessarily too far gone, but you look back and you're like, am I even happy with what I'm doing? You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. This, That's good. That hits yeah. hard. Um, yeah. This has been extraordinary. I really appreciate you taking the time, Ben. Uh, yes, thank very you, Very insightful. Ben. I feel like uh, you were just chock full of wisdom nuggets. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is there I try. That, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to plug <laughs> or any other uh, things that you want to mention before we end the episode? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so definitely um, everyone listening, head to the Morning Brew Commerce Store. Um, should be shop.morningbrew.com. We have some fantastic products and we're rolling out more every single day. So get in there, take a look and also sign up for all, all the Morning Brew newsletters. They're Chock full yes. of fantastic information. Um, it'll it's a great way to start your day and stay informed. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Likewise. Thank you, Ben. You're listening to a brand folder podcast where we like to say, strong brands live here. Join us as we build the brand collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been the Brand Collective.